This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each year at General Assembly, we host an assembly-wide seminar with a panel discussing a topic of timely importance. Sometimes these panels are members of a study committee sharing the fruit of their work. Other times, leaders with a variety of opinions gather to share a specific focus. Here is the panel on the role of women from June 2017 at the PCA General Assembly in Greensboro, North Carolina. Thank you, Dr. Taylor. Good morning, everyone. It is indeed has been my privilege to serve as the chair for our church's study committee on the role of women in the ministry of the church. And uh, it is a joy for us to be here before you this morning to talk about uh, to talk about our report and to receive and answer some of your questions. Uh, here's what I want to do uh, this morning. I'm going to introduce uh, your committee to you in just a second, but I want to let you know about how we're going to proceed. Uh, we're going to spend uh, a few minutes um, with each of the five sections uh, of the report, giving a, a brief overview by one of the committee members, and then we're going to have a time of uh, Q&A or Q and response from you all. The important thing to note is you should look at the screen right now because we are, in order to make the best use of our time, we're taking questions electronically. So you see an email address on the screen and you see uh, a phone number there. So you can text your question or email your question uh, Mr. Michael Keller is here in the front with his laptop, and we, he'll be able to kind of put light questions together and direct them to our uh, to our committee. Those questions that are received that are that are asked uh, will appear on the screen as well. And so, I just want you to let you know that's how we'll be taking and responding to questions, and you can actually start sending them now. So you don't have to wait until we are finished working through. Uh, our introductory portion. So let me uh, let me introduce our committee members to you. I'm going to start over here on my far right. Uh, Bruce O'Neill uh, is uh, to the furthest right. Would you just raise your hand, Bruce, so everybody can see you? Uh, and then uh, Ms. Mary Beth McGreevy, Dr. Harry Reader, Dr. Dan Doriani. Did I say something funny? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Jeffrey Choi. Uh, Kathy Keller, uh, Ligon Duncan, Lonnie Jones, Leon Brown, and William Castro. Uh, one other member is uh, Dr. 
Roy Taylor, but he's not up on the dais with us. And so uh, last year's assembly, the 44th assembly, had um, given the moderator the, the duty to appoint a study committee on the role of women in the ministry of the church, and we were to be charged with giving particular attention to a few things, the biblical basis, theology, nature and authority of ordination, the biblical nature and function of the office of deacon, clarification or the ordination or commissioning of deacons and deaconesses, uh, and should we find a need to propose uh, changes uh, for the GA to consider to our book of church order, to compose a pastoral letter uh, that um, would be sent to all the churches, encouraging our churches uh, to promote the practice of women in ministry, to appoint women to serve alongside elders and deacons in the pastoral work of the church, and to hire women on church staff in appropriate ministries. And so one other important point on this is that uh, we, uh, the moderator is also charged to uh, appoint um, competent men and women representing the diversity of opinions in the PCA. And you should know that he did just that. The full range of the diversity of opinions on all of these issues in our church is represented on this committee. That meant that we had some fun and intense dialogue and uh, discussions on all of these matters. But the most encouraging thing is that all of that was seasoned with grace and love uh, and support, that we wanted to be a blessing and serve uh, our church. And, you know, given that diversity, there was a potential uh, for uh, the fact that we could present something to you that would potentially divide or split our denomination in terms of opinion with a majority and a minority report. So from the beginning, what we were intentionally pursuing was a consensus report. Uh, that, that uh, in other words, so what that meant in our work was that uh, everybody was not going to get everything they wanted in this work and this report. Uh, it's important for you uh, to know that. Uh, I quote um, from uh, my brother, Dr. Harry Reader, the, the phrase he would use that I think represents um, what we were all doing. He would say, I'm going to take this one for the team. Uh, we wanted to be able uh, to come before you with something that we prayed would bless the church. And so we had to come to a bottom line agreement. And what we agreed on from the beginning of our work was that we wanted to foster in our work uh, uh, a robust and gracious complementarian practice for our church when it comes to women serving in the ministry of the church. And so uh, I pray that if you have read our report that you could see and hear and experience that as you work through the various chapters. And so what we're going to do now is go through just a brief overview of, of each of the chapters, and then we will start with our Q&A portion. So, Dan, would you come up and lead us in chapter two? Uh, Dan Doriani from Missouri Presbytery. And uh, I just uh, want to say first what a joy it's been to work 
uh, with this team, even when we disagreed. I was just talking to Ligon, um, asking, hey, how much did you write, and how much did I write, and how much did Leon write? Just remind me of this uh, portion of the report. Of course, everybody participated in the uh, Bible study section, and it's uh, my privilege to summarize that for a couple minutes. I will say that, of course, we wrote with all of you in mind, but in the back of my mind were also uh, my three very talented daughters who talked to me one-on-one -on -one, uh, about this report at some point in the last year or so. So uh, what we found essentially is this in scriptures, that is that in Israel and in the church, men do most of the leadership in the body of Christ in the covenant community. Women do all sorts of things, but they don't do everything. Uh, so the obvious, uh, the Lord ordained that males be priests, the sons of Aaron, that the sons of David be kings, and of course most, but not all, of the prophets were males. In the New Testament, Jesus, as we know, chose 12 male apostles. Uh, many people would say that's a concession to the times. Jesus certainly fit into his times but he did not concede any moral issue to the time. So if we believe that if it was a moral issue that women had had to be apostles, Jesus would have done that no matter how unpopular it would have been in his culture. Obviously, we see that overseers in the lists are males. They are not married people. They are, for example, in 1 Timothy 1, the husband of one wife. Uh, and the church planters and Early missionaries in the book of Acts are all male as well. We have Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Titus, uh, John, Epaphras, Epaphroditus, and others. So that's uh, male leadership. On the other hand, you look and you notice quickly that Deborah was a judge and that Huldah and Philip's daughters are prophetesses. We have Priscilla first, then Aquila instructing Apollos. We have uh, Paul naming any number of women who were very active and prominent in the co-founding or the leadership of the churches. He singles out Mary Junius, uh, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, and others for their singular aid. Of course, there's a lot of debate about Phoebe, who is called a diakonos. And uh, as you know, we concluded that that means servant. She's certainly a leader of some kind, but we did not conclude as a group that she was um, ordained as a deaconess or ordained as a deacon. When you look at the uh, challenging passages of Paul, first in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, and then 1 Timothy 2 and 3, we noticed that women are expected by Paul to pray and to prophesy. Everyone has a teaching, and yet we concluded, not unanimously, I might add, uh, but we concluded that um, the time when women are to be quiet does not mean absolute silence, but quiet while the testing of prophecy is given. Of course, there's some disagreement about that. Uh, our view of 1 Timothy chapter 3 is uh, standard. Uh, I was talking to one of you beforehand and said, well, that's kind of a, a gentle complementarian view or a moderate complementarian view, and I would say exactly so. I think that's, that's where we came out. On 1 Timothy 2, I want you to know we were all in absolute agreement we're all in absolute agreement on complementarianism. The diversity on our team did not have to do with the ordination of uh, women to the offices of teaching or ruling elder. I wasn't just taking a stand on how many offices we have. I'm just commenting. Um, teaching elders and ruling elders are to be male. That's absolutely unanimous. We did disagree a bit 
on, uh, on the role of women as uh, deacons, possibly ordained, but the conclusion we came to as a committee, as you see, is that um, the word diakonos used of Phoebe is um, probably non-technical. Most of the uses of diakonos in the New Testament are non-technical, and we take it that way here. And we also take 1 Timothy 3 not to be uh, positioning women as deacons uh, in the 1 Timothy 3 passage. So what do we find? We find that has, God has given an order in which there are priests and kings and prophets too. And I'm not going to try to nuance the prophet discussion. Uh, priests and kings and apostles and elders leading the church and women doing all sorts of very important things in the church that was... Uh, then necessary and remains necessary for the thriving, the functioning of the church. A personal word would be simply this. Probably most of our churches are 55% female, and we need their gifts. We need them in general, and we also need them for things that women only can do. And so we commend that to you uh, with a unanimous report that took a lot of compromising that was sharp but friendly. Hi, I'm Harry Reeder, senior pastor or teaching elder at Evangel Presbytery and uh, senior pastor at Briarwood. Um, let me just take just a moment to thank our, um, our chairman, Dr. Entz, not only for his deliberate uh, leadership that kept us on track so that we could not be back here this year asking for an extra year, praise the Lord. We're here to give a report. And uh, his leadership allowed us to do that, as well as the, both the passion and gifts of those who were on the committee as we worked together to work our way through this. And it was a real blessing. My, um, by involved in the general work, I had the privilege, but also on the ordination issue. I remember I turned in my report from our subcommittee, and the next day I had open heart surgery. There may be a direct relationship between those two things. And... Um, so I want to, uh, again, thank Dr. Entz and the committee for patience with me as I work through that uh, physical situation. But my job is to give you a little bit of a distillation. So there are four things I want to kind of give you a distillation of where we arrived in this matter of ordination. Uh, we did come to consensus, and I, we believe it's absolutely crucial. Uh, in order to make sure we don't overstep in terms of ministry responsibilities for men and women, uh, but yet, in order to have a full embrace of the gifts and ministry in the life of the church for men and women, it is important not only to get a biblical view of complementarianism, but also a biblical view uh, for ordination. Uh, dare I say, not only robust complementarianism, but robust ordination. And what does it mean? And uh, so we believe that our uh, arriving at this is absolutely crucial. Uh, as we move forward and not step over boundaries, but yet make full use uh, of, the, um, of the gifts of the body of Christ appropriately. And this doctrine of ordination is crucial to this. So here are the four things that I'd ask you to consider from our chapter. Number one is this. We came to the conclusion uh, by consensus that the doctrine of ordination is not an ecclesiastical and religious tradition that has accrued biblical gravitas throughout the 2,000 years of the church history. 
Let me say it again. It is not an ecclesiastical tradition that was adopted and has accrued biblical gravitas, but it is a biblical precept and practice that has been embraced and embedded in the ecclesiastical tradition of the church throughout the years. Again, let me repeat it. It is not a tradition that we have given biblical weight to. It is a biblical practice and precept that has brought weight to our ecclesiastical tradition. So, and that, so most of you know, by and large, in the history of Christendom, there's two views. You've got the Roman Catholic view that in ordination, uh, the individual is consecrated to the ministry assignment of the office, and in the ordination, conveyance of spiritual gifts take place. Thus, in the Roman Catholic view, it becomes a sacrament of the church, the sacrament of holy orders, and then it also feeds the errors of sacerdotalism and magisterium. But in the Reformed view that uh, was recaptured most pr pronounced way in the Reformation, or I would dare say the biblical view, is that, ord that ordination is the assignment to the office. It does not convey spiritual gifts through the act of ordination, but it is a recognition of the gifts that have been conveyed, and the body of Christ has recognized those gifts and now consecrates the person to the official ministry responsibilities of elder and deacon. And in the ordination, there is the laying on of hands, there is the ordination vows, there are the delineation of, of the responsibilities and the honor and authority of the office. So uh, that, would be, that would be the first thing that we would see in terms of how ordination in the Reformed Church is to be considered. Number two, ordination, uh, ordination to ministry should include and must include the laying on of hands while recognizing that there are other um, ministry moments and the life and ministry of the church where laying on of hands is appropriate, this uh, ordination includes the laying on of hands accompanied by the appropriate vows with the appropriate context, accompanied by exhortation, accompanied by prayer, and that we are careful to include all of those things in the ordination act, as I said, including the laying on of hands, while recognizing that laying on of hands occurs at various ministry tasks and moments in the, like, in the ministry of the church. So, but when it is done in an ordination service, the ordination service itself that has the laying on of hands is done in such a manner and content that is unmistakable what is taking place in that ordination service. Let me give the flip side. The flip side is in those moments in the life of the church where this general laying on of hands might be present, it would never be, the way that that is done would never be confused with an ordination service. So when it's done in a general sense in the life of the church, it would never be confused by the way it is done with ordination. And the way it is done in ordination would be abundantly clear by the content, the vows, the preaching, and all that takes place in that. Number three. The biblical mandate for ordination should not only be reflected in the ordination service, but also in the life and ministry of the ordained officers. In other words, there's a reason we ordain uh, qualified men to the office. Dare I take a moment to read now the definition which we arrived at by consensus, and, uh, and I, believe it is, I, I believe it's well done, sorry, I was involved in it, but I believe it's well done and helpful. Um, 
2,436 in your, in your uh, report, it says this, ordination, biblically, historically, and with specificity in Reformed and Presbyterian evangelical churches is the formal setting aside of a called, sent, and qualified man, not just man, called, sent, and qualified man from the fellowship of an ecclesiastical assembly consisting of God's covenant people to a specific office with vows affirming the responsibility, power, and authority necessary for the fulfillment of that specified ecclesiastical office. Well, with that summation statement, it would stand to reason that elders and deacons that are the ordained offices, that those offices would have duties and tasks and honor and authority that would manifest why we ordained them. In other words, in the diaconate, we ordained them not simply to hand out bulletins. You don't need an ordination to hand out bulletins. There is more to the office of deacon than that that ordination would reflect as well as elder. Fourthly and finally, healthy churches need the ordained offices and ministry. Um, healthy churches need the ordained offices and ministry, including the office of deacon. We are fully aware that a church can become particularized without ordained deacons. That does not mean that the ordained office of deacon is superfluous or can be set aside. That when the church became mature and healthy, they did seek deacons and they sought to ordain them because they needed them. So the healthy churches need the ordained office and ministry of ordained deacons as the church ministers and for the church to function and fulfill its, its biblical mission of the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. It was a privilege to work with them. We believe this issue of ordination, when properly established, will allow the circumference of appropriate, robust ministry to be observed within the church as we get, take full advantage of the gifts in, in the body of Christ, but we do so from having nailed down clearly what ordination is in the life and ministry of a church seeking to be faithful to God's word. Good morning. Don't you just love General Assembly? It's a privilege to be here, as it was a privilege to be a part of this committee and to serve on the subcommittee of our committee that looked at complementarianism in practice. So within biblical parameters and our confessional standards, what may our women do in the church to fully live out their spiritual giftedness and calling? not wanting to go beyond nor fall short of biblical prohibitions, how can our churches apply the beautiful, beautiful pattern of complementarianism that God has given for the well-being of the church? So our chairman, Dr. Ince, gave our subcommittee nine areas to investigate regarding the practical application of the biblical principle of complementarianism. And based on the exegetical work that our committee already did, we looked at these nine things. We were to develop a gracious apologetic for complementarianism based on God's goodness in creating two genders. We were to answer, what are the various complementarian practices in the PCA? What's actually happening within our churches at the current time? Thirdly, how can we identify and make room for the gifts and abilities of women to flourish? Fourthly, what roles in worship are open to women, if any, and which roles are exclusively held for ordained men only? 
Number five, should qualified women serve on committees and agencies of the PCA at the local level, presbytery level, and or general assembly level? What roles should we encourage be open to qualified women? Number six, what roles are open to women serving alongside deacons? Is commissioning deaconesses acceptable in the PCA? Number seven, we work to investigate the role of qualified women in working with the session of the church, including and especially staff members, qualified staff members, such as directors of women's ministries, directors of children's ministries, church counselors, administrators, directors of assimilation, and other such positions. The eighth question was, how can we affirm women who have obvious Bible teaching skills? And lastly, number nine, we work to investigate the possibility and role of unordained commissioned church worker. What would be the benefits, the requirements, the responsibilities, and so forth of such a role? So our subcommittee divided into subgroups to study these various questions. And after all the reports had been gathered from these teams and submitted to be reviewed by our subcommittee, we met by a telephone and went over all of our reports before we submitted them to the general committee to be reviewed, which was then submitted to the subcommittee that was writing the final report. And that's how the chapter four, encouraging a robust and gracious complementarian practice, and also the pastoral letter and recommendations came to be written. On a personal note, I have two things to say to you about our report. Firstly, I hope it will be a great encouragement to both men and women alike about some of the things and possibilities of how our women can serve, maybe in ways that you haven't thought about before. Maybe you as a woman or you teaching or ruling elder look at these possibilities and think, you know, we don't have any women in our church who are qualified yet or skilled enough yet to do these jobs. So I hope this report will encourage you to train these women. Either do it yourself or sponsor them, pay for them to go to the PCA Women's Ministry Leadership Training in February. Sponsor them as they take seminary classes online or even yet sponsor them and send them to seminary to get a counseling degree, to get a Master's of Arts in Educational Ministries so they can come back and help you, help you bear that load of counseling and, and adult education and children's education, women's ministries, all those things. So I remember my first semester in seminary in beginning Greek, it was in Dr. David Chapman's class at Covenant Seminary, and he had us one by one stand and say our name and why we were there. So my turn came and I stood up and said, I'm Mary Beth McGreevy, and I want to ask you, how many of you men who are going to be pastors would like the woman who teaches your women's Bible study to have her MDiv? And all the hands went up and I said, that's why I'm here. The women in our churches, we want to help. We want to serve. That's why God created us. Secondly, I want to just give you a little personal illustration or just an illustration to let you know how I feel as a woman in the PCA when the slippery slope argument comes up about our report. And it's a, it's a very good question. 
because I don't want to go down a slippery slope either. I was reared in a very liberal denomination with women pastors, and I, I was so thrilled to join the PCA. I cried for several weeks after I joined, because here's a denomination that believes in, that in the ordained offices should be men, an authoritative office, and I, you believe in the inerrant, inspired, uh, infallible word of God and stand by it and don't apologize for it and that's what I'm for and so I think we have to guard the slippery slope but when this report says that the title of commissioned church worker could be given to our lay people who've given their lives devoted their lives to church service and so they could get the tax benefit and the housing benefits that the government would recognize this title people say well that's a slippery slope and pretty soon we're going to be ordaining women I'm thinking, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't see that. And we worked very carefully in this report to make sure that we protected that off, those offices. And we were very careful to say unordained a lot. So this is how I feel when the slippery slope argument comes up. I'm driving down the road in a 65 mile an hour zone. And there's a guy in front of me going 40. And I put my head out there and I say, hey, can you pick it up? And he yells back to me, no, I'm afraid if I get out of your way that you're going to break the speed limit. And I yell back, you know what? God's given me this powerful car and he's given me somewhere to be and he's given me something to do and he's given me his enabling grace to do it. And I have no intention of breaking the law. I love the law. I love the lawgiver. He's my father. He's your father. He's got something for us to do, and he's got somewhere for us to be. So get it in gear and let's go. As you can tell, the committee has incredibly gifted people to serve on it. In fact, uh, if I could borrow I'm a pastor in Annapolis, Maryland. And uh, if I can use a baseball illustration, I was happily serving in a double-A baseball team when I got a call uh, that they were calling me up, but they said that the team was going to the World Series and they were going to put me in the game. So I feel the most unqualified of the group that stands up here. They are theologians and gifted teachers and uh, pastors, but they are incredibly rich in diversity of views and practices with regard uh, to the role of women in ministry. And I believe that's a strength, not a weakness of the committee. I believe our willingness to respect and support these different views are reflected in the report that you have before you. We also recognize, and it is our hope, that the PCA continue to recognize and allow this diversity of views and practices within the boundaries of our confessional standards and constitution. And I believe this is a strength of our denomination, that we value unity around our confession and our constitution, and that we don't insist on uniformity within the PCA. The pastoral letter and the accompanying recommendations that you find in uh, your handbook are the only parts of the report 
that will be voted on this afternoon by this assembly. Having said that, it is important to note that the majority of the recommendations that are before you today are the result of the work that is found in Chapter 4, encouraging a robust and gracious complementarian practice, and that Chapter 4 is based on the exegetical work that you find in Chapter 2, entitled A Biblical Foundation for the Roles of Women in the Church, and from Chapter 3 on Ordination. It is our desire to provide you and the churches of our denomination and, and the presbyteries a way forward that encourages and incorporates the gifts and talents and skills of the women in our churches for the ministries of our church. The study committee is not making any overtures to the General Assembly to consider. We believe that should be sessions and presbyteries if they so desire to take up any next steps, including any overtures to future General Assemblies. And so if any specific changes to the Book of Church order or to RAO that need to be made to implement any of the recommendations that you find in this report, we believe that the process for the church to consider those changes would go through the normal processes of sessions and presbyteries to the General Assembly. Therefore, the study committee offers nine recommendations for this General Assembly to consider today. These are recommendations for further steps, ways to encourage and uh, to provide a way forward for sessions and presbyteries to pick up as they see fit our hope is that you read them as we intended them, as practical advice to sessions and presbyteries to be applied to each court as it wrestles specifically with encouraging women in the ministries of our churches and our church as a whole. You will find all nine of the recommendations on page 2,458. The first recommendation that will be for you is that as a committee, we recommend that Overture 3 be answered in the negative as it asks the assembly to rule this report out of order before we even make it. The second recommendation is asking sessions and presbyteries and eventually the General Assembly to continue to recognize the variety of views and practices within the PCA regarding the ways in which women may serve within scriptural and constitutional boundaries. The third recommendation is asking sessions and presbyteries to consider allowing qualified women to serve on appropriate committees and agencies within the church at the local, regional, and national levels. Recommendation number four is asking sessions, if possible, to establish a, a diaconate of qualified ordained men. Recommendation five is asking sessions to consider how to include non-ordained men and women in the worship of our churches, that is, in roles that not already designated uh, for ordained office. Recommendation six is asking that sessions and presbyteries to select and appoint godly uh, women of the congregation to assist the ordained leadership which is already permitted in the Book of Church Order, Chapter 9. 
Section 7. Recommendation 7 is asking presbyteries to consider making an overture that would formally establish the right of sessions, presbyteries and the General Assembly, to have a position of commissioned church worker. Recommendation 8 is asking sessions and presbyteries to consider how they can affirm and include underprivileged and underrepresented women in the PCA. And then the last recommendation, this is the one that we are most happy about, is asking the General Assembly to dismiss this committee. <laughs> though it has been a joy to do this work, it now will become your work and to the works of all the courts in our denomination at the local church level, at the regional presbytery level, and then if any of those courts so desire, the General Assembly itself. It is our deepest desire that all of the gifts, talents, and ability that God gives all of the members of his church to be effectively used for the advancement of his kingdom and for his glory. Thank you. When the PCA wants to do something as a denomination, it depends on the AC. When the PCA wants to get together and conduct the business of the church, the PCA depends on AC to coordinate General Assembly. When the PCA wants to maintain relationships with other denominations, the PCA depends on AC to coordinate interchurch relations. When the PCA wants to study an important matter, the PCA depends on the AC to coordinate study committees. When the PCA needs to hear and rule on important discipline cases, the PCA depends on the AC to coordinate the work of the Standing Judicial Commission. The PCA depends on the AC, and the AC depends on generous churches and individuals like you. Learn more about our work and how you can support it at PCAAC.org. A little bit. There we go. Good morning. My name is Michael Keller. I've been asked to uh, aggregate these questions that are coming in this morning. Uh, I've been doing this for years with RUF as a campus minister, and now as a church planner, we, after every service, uh, do Q&A after our services. But I think the main reason why I'm here is I have a relative on the committee who knows I would be doing this for free. So <laughs> thank you. Um, we, you've been texting and emailing questions. I've tried to give priority to those uh, that had repeated questions, and so we put them up here. Um, we've also, if you, you've asked some interesting um, biblical questions, that, as well as when it comes to exegesis, so there are some in here as well. If anybody's interested to see all the total questions that have been asked, feel free to come up and uh, get that information for me. Thank you. Here's the first question to the committee. The first question is, would you please define the committee's working definition of complementarianism? Would you please define the committee's working definition of complementarianism? The committee recognizes the biblical teaching that God has created male and female fully in his image, uh, equal in dignity, but that he has called qualified males 
to serve as elders and pastors in the church. And he has called upon husbands to give spiritual leadership in the home. Okay, we'll move on unless there's other committee members that would like to answer that question. Here's a second question. As a woman, why do we need a title? I am concerned that we are going down the slippery slope to ordaining women in the PCA. As a woman, why do we need a title? I already want to answer oh, that one. I, can I repeat the question? <laughs> I am concerned that we are going down the slippery slope to ordaining women in the PCA. Now, I know that's a question on a lot of people's minds, and I really, really wanted to answer that one. I don't think there's any slippery slope. I think there may be a little slick spot in the sidewalk, but there's no slippery slope, and I'll tell you why. There's nobody in this denomination, nobody up here, nobody down there, who wants to see women in authoritative roles. The whole debate is within whether or not the diaconate carries an authority with it. Edmund P. Clowney, who was the president of Westminster Seminary in his book about the church, did not think that the office of deacon was one that carried an authoritative role, that was an authoritative role, it carried no juridical authority with it. That is something for the exegetes to decide. I personally agree with Ed Clowney, and therefore I think that women could be, potentially, if the assembly would decide to entertain an overture at some future assembly, ordained as female deaconesses. But that's where it stops. It's not like you get on a train with unordained female deaconesses, and then the next stop is ordained female deacons, and then the next stop is ordained elders as women, women as ordained elders, and the next stop is female pastors, and you can't get off the train. The train stops because nobody wants to see women in authoritative roles. Nobody believes that. If you believe that, you don't belong here in the PCA. You should go find a denomination that does believe that, because this one doesn't. It's, there's, there's no slippery slope. There's no train that takes you from unordained female deaconesses to ordained women pastors, because there's this giant chasm. There's no bridge. There's no passports. There's no way to get from one to the other if you don't believe that women are allowed to have roles of authority. And the discussion within the idea of female deaconesses or ordained deacons is solely based on whether or not you think the, the role, the office of deacon carries with it in it authority. We can hash that out. You guys can hash that out. I'm not going to have any part in hashing that out because I don't have any authority. <laughs> <laughs> So you go ahead and hash that out. But after that, the train stops. There is no slippery slope. If you want to think that going from unordained female deaconesses to maybe an ordained female deacon is a slippery slope, okay. But that's a really short slope. It's not going to go any further because we just don't believe that. We do not believe that women should hold an authoritative office. And I'll come back and haunt you if you do. <laughs> Okay, third question. And we have about 50 minutes uh, set aside for these questions, so um, thank you for asking them. Here's the third question. What New Testament evidence is there for the practice of commissioning non-ordained ministers or persons? 
Why does such the report, why does the report fail to cite any such evidence? I'll, I'll repeat the question. What New Testament evidence is there for the practice of commissioning non-ordained ministers or persons? And why does this report fail to cite any such evidence? So I, I think we'll do an all play on this one and I'll get um, a couple of my partners to join in. Um, my view is there isn't evidence for commissioning non-ordained ministers. That it's not cited because uh, I didn't see any when I was working on that part of it. Um, we do certainly have women doing a wide variety of important things. And if I can pass the baton on to Harry, um, a, <laughs> a, um, we, we do as tradition, we don't, we don't have a biblical warrant, but we traditionally do commission people for all sorts of things in our denomination, including mission trips, and we commission teenagers who are going their first trip and 20-year-olds. And, and we view that not as a matter of biblical mandate, but simply a, a matter of uh, caring and, and praying over and sending with joy and so on. So um, the short answer is uh, there's no evidence from Scripture cited because uh, we who wrote that section didn't see any. But we do see women doing a wide variety of important things that are recognized as significant work in the church. And this seems one way, a prudent way perhaps, of recognizing important workers who are not ordained. Um, yeah, I would say, uh, and I know the pushback is, is going to come, they were already ordained, but when you see Barnabas and Saul being commissioned for the missionary task by the church at Antioch, I don't think that, and the laying on of hands and sending them out, I don't think that was a reordination service. I think they were just commissioning them to a task. And while they were already ordained, the point is they were being commissioned to a task. That's, I think that and other, a few other reasons is why we see such commissioning acts. For instance, last no, Sunday night before last, we brought up 40 students, teenagers, who are going to serve one of our missionary families in South America. And we brought all 40 of them up. Uh, we prayed over them. We had elders come up and lay hands on them. Uh, we defined what they were doing, but no one would have ever walked out of there and say, did you know Briarwood is ordaining teenagers? Uh, because did you see what happened? That's why I said in the report, in my distillation, is that an ordination, including laying on of hands, service ought to be distinct, clear, sacred. It's communication, it's, it's vows. Such ministry moments and tasks in which we commission people ought to be equally clear. It's not an ordination service, and it shouldn't look like one or act like one, but that doesn't mean that we can't commission people to certain tasks with special prayer and consecration. And we're not giving them an authority act of ordination. We are giving them a directive act and assuring them of our support of them and encourage of them, encouragement of them as they are accomplishing it. So I believe such commissioning acts are in Scripture. I believe that, um, and I believe they can be done in the church for those who are not ordained. And when it, when it is done, it is done in such a way that no confusion with an ordination service would ever be possible because of the manner in which it uh, is, um, is implemented. In case you missed it, that was a case of us disagreeing with each other on the committee. 
<laughs> but we're still friends. And it's really fun to disagree with Dan, I can tell you. Question number four. Would you please explain how creating the category of commissioned church worker is not creating a de facto office? Why is this necessary? Would you please explain how creating the category of commissioned church worker is not creating a de facto office? Why is this necessary? Let me start this off. Just by, by looking at the rationale that we gave in that section, this was something that uh, we began to talk about and work through early on um, as a committee. And note, what we say is that Presbyterianism in America has, uh, in the past, recognized the need to set apart qualified women and men for service in the church outside of licensure and ordination. And so we give this example of uh, the 1938 PCUS Digest, uh, that describes the qualifications and requirements for people desiring to serve as commissioned church worker, uh, but it clearly states it has no relationship to ordination or licensure. And so we think that it addresses, as we say, a number of issues in our church. It does not represent an office, um, uh, that, but it does recognize those whose lives have been given in service to the body. Certainly you can make an argument, oh, we don't need to recognize, but there's no, certainly no harm in doing so. Um, and it says an unordained man or woman would have to receive advanced training experience appropriate to their area of service. It would be a rec way to recognize trained and committed staff workers who are making service to the church their life's work. And so uh, it does have the uh, this particular designation does have uh, the benefit, uh, at, the, at least at the current time, of being uh, recognized in our uh, in our tax code uh, for the ability to receive the kind of benefits that you receive uh, in an ordained office, and so that is uh, that's a potential uh, benefit to it as well. And so, uh, and so it's not uh, it is. It's not absolutely necessary, but we believe it is useful and even prudent at this time to do so. Let me give a, uh, an example of that. A pastor of a church that has uh, 20 full-time staff and only three of the full-time staff are ordained pastors. I would love to recognize some of them because the session has set them apart to lead significant ministries within our church to recognize them as commissioned uh, workers because they already are leaders. They have no designation as such because our Book of Church Order doesn't provide such a designation, but they're uh, women's director at our church, youth directors. So many of our folks in our denomination, one way they're getting around this because they would love to take advantage of the, the privilege that ordained people have is they go out and get on the internet and get an ordination through the internet. Now, our church and our denomination doesn't recognize those, but it is a way in which they can get that benefit. This particular commissioned worker, particularly if we have qualifications and responsibilities that are attached to it, will be allowed to use that designation for that very purpose, and you wouldn't see so many people moving uh, toward internet ordination because they, they, ha they, they don't haven't had the training to become ordained 
or particularly if they're a woman, uh, to carry that designation. They're not looking for authority. They're looking uh, for opportunity, and that's a different uh, uh, issue. Well, let me uh, uh, just say this. I, boy, I am hesitant to do this because I love the Book of Church Order, but not anywhere near what some of you love the Book of Church Order. <laughs> and uh, I know some of you actually have holsters that you carry yours with you. And um, so I am about, I am now working from memory and I'm going to, but if I'm not mistaken, we not only have uh, pastors, associate pastors, and assistant pastors, but we also have. We also ran out of time. Those are the people who love the Booker Church Order. Yeah, <laughs> cut me off. <laughs> I think we recognize assistance to the pastors. Uh, those are non-ordained people that we have selected to come alongside the pastor for a specific task or to in, uh, assist the pastor in particular areas, and uh, we recognize that. I would. I would see this uh, falling into, uh, I don't, I I have, um, I believe that uh, for all the reasons stated and with clarity, it could become very clear and would be very clear what this position in the church is and that it is not another office nor a de facto office. It is something that the offices have declared that they would then make use of in the life and ministry of the church for men and women in orders of ministry that would be helpful to the church for specific purposes. May I say one thing about that? Since I'm the only person up here who has ever actually held the office, not the office, not the office, <laughs> held the role of commissioned church worker. I, w I grew up in the United Presbyterian Church, and because I didn't know any better, I was headed towards ordination, and I was under care of my session. And then I came under the ministry of R.C. Sproul and Francis Schaeffer and learned how to read the scripture and believe that it was infallible and inerrant, and it was clear even to my very naive eyes that women were not to be ordained. So I made my views known to my advisor, Doug Dunderdale, and he switched my track with Pittsburgh Presbytery which where I was about to go under care from ordination track to commissioned church worker, which they had that track at the time. That night on the floor of Presbytery, I was questioned as to why I was not going to be ordained and why I had switched to the track of commissioned church worker. And when I said, because I believe the scripture teaches that ordination is for men only, I was booed and hissed by about half the pastors and the elders in the room. They clearly recognized that ordination and commissioned church worker were not the same thing or anything close. Okay, our fifth question. Is there an inherent tension in our polity with an office of service and an understanding of ordination that implies authority? Is there an inherent tension in our polity with an office of service and an understanding of an ordination that implies authority? I think there's an easy answer to that question and quite short is that even if there is, that we recognize there is, there doesn't have to be. That really is how we handle it. And so the, all the onus is on us whether we create a tension in our polity toward 
office, uh, service and an understanding of ordination. I, I think what I really liked about the chapter on ordination, so I encourage you to read that chapter, is that it's very clear that what we're talking about here is not ordination. Okay, next question. What was your process of coming to consensus? How difficult was it to find consensus? How much difference was there among the committee on two things, women ordained as deaconesses and women on national PCA committees? There's a lot of questions there. The process of coming to consensus well, as I said in the opening, it, it started with a commitment to pursue consensus. And so uh, there was a, a desire in the committee that we wanted to be able to speak as uh, unitedly as we could on this issue, meaning we did not want to produce a majority report and a minority report. Uh, and so in all of the matters of, as we broke into subcommittees to divide the work that ended up uh, being uh, this report, uh, those subcommittees would, would, um, would do their work and bring uh, their, their findings and their writings back to the, the whole committee. Uh, and we would work through it. We worked through it together. We worked through it online. We would uh, use things like uh, Google Docs to, to, to edit one another and to comment on, uh, on what had been written. And then when we were face to face, we met face to face three times, uh, I believe. And in each of those, uh, we would, we would literally just work through the things that we had been uh, been working on in the interim. And so it was some parts were more challenging to find consensus on than uh, than others. Um, but uh, particularly with the regard to women ordained as deaconesses, um, you know, how how much difference was there? Uh, it was a there's difference, you know, enough that uh, some folks are some folks are okay with uh, with our church uh, moving in that direction, but we knew one thing we knew is that we didn't want to pursue that course and have this assembly be the one that gets kind of tracked on that as consuming our dialogue on the issue of the role of women in the ministry of the church. And I don't think there was much difference in terms of um, in terms of women serving on the appropriate committees and agencies of our church. So, uh, just a, an additional comment uh, would be to underscore no difference what um, if someone's asking, we're not going to say how many took what position, but it was not the majority that wanted to have deaconesses or ordained female deacons. Uh, but we did work together, I would say, with uh, marvelous respect for each other, listening carefully and long to each other. Uh, I want to just give credit to Irwin and, and candidly to George Robertson, who uh, put together people who are diverse in views and and I would say know how to disagree sharply and yet in a very friendly way and always go back to scripture as they do so. Allow me to say something. Can I speak real quick and, and apologize for my accent? Uh, this is my two cents, um, better say my two pesos, you know, with the currency. 
I think I, I highly respect all the all the people in the committee, and I think the basic work has been in the exegetical part. I think if we agree in exegesis, we're in good, you know, good way, good road to go. Um, uh, my encouragement to the denomination, uh, and uh, I highly respect different views of the exegetical uh, differences, but my encouragement will be to go deep and study the history of interpretation of the passages. You know, I don't think uh, it's a secret that my main disagreement has been with the interpretation of 1 Corinthians 14.34. You know, I struggle to uh, accept the idea that the restriction of the silence is only during the judging of prophecies. You know, for me, because I came from the Latin American context, um, as you see my southern accent, you know, I'm from South America. <laughs> the, we have a word in Spanish called reelectura, which means basically rereading the text. I think there's no issue of the PCA. This is more an issue of the American Christianity in general during the 20th century. In my opinion, there has been some rereading of the text. I'm not saying that there is a slippery slope danger because I believe uh, there is good intentions in this room and there are going to be good application of the report. You know, I, I support the report, there's going to be good application. But just encourage to go deep in the conversation about the history of exegesis. The classical and traditional interpretation not always is good, but I really, we need to be careful how to handle the classical and traditional interpretations of the text. I think that's the most basic task. It's going to be the most basic task for our denomination, for the future of our denomination, for our children, and also, allow me to say this, for the immigrant churches in the denomination, in the country, that are, uh, will be ordaining the future ruling elders and teaching elders in the PCA. We have time for one more question. We have two minutes left. Here's the last question that we'll be presenting. It seems like this report merely accepts every existing practice in the PCA. <laughs> How does this report change or affect the existing status quo in the PCA? It seems like this report merely accepts every other pra existing practice in the PCA. How does this report change or affect the existing status quo in the PCA? After this question is answered, I'd love uh, for Pastor Irwin to close us in a word of prayer. I want to leave room for others and, and simply say, a little while ago, I was uh, speaking in a church that said, we don't let women read the Bible in worship services. Uh, that statement was made to me about 20 minutes after a service ended in which a woman read 20 verses of scripture. They didn't seem to be aware that a woman who was giving a testimony about um, adoption of unwanted children had in in a loving, exhorting, godly way, exhorted people to welcome the stranger by citing about 20 verses. They actually didn't hear it happen. And to some extent, what we were trying to do was label the best practices that we aren't even aware of. So I, I, I respect the question deeply and really would want to say we were trying to label the best of what we do. So I'll concede the point, and yet so much of what we do uh, requires us to come to fullness of awareness of the best thoughts and practices that we have. And to, to close that loop is that any changes that 
that are to take next steps will be up to individual sessions and presbyteries to write how to to shape the what the applications and steps will look like into the future. We we just want to identify what was already going on in our denomination, the best practices, and then allow sessions and presbyteries to think through that about it, do we need to codify it? A lot of what we found doesn't need codification in our book of church order. It already allows for the things that we do, like uh, appointing women to serve uh, alongside ordained uh, uh, men. It's already in uh, chapter 9, uh, section uh, 7 of our book of church order, so no amendment is necessary. But if a presbytery or a session would like to see uh, something different in line of encouraging women's gifts, talents, and abilities, they can write an overture to the General Assembly for us to consider in the future. We didn't want to do that work. We wanted that work to be back into the hands of the courts that have the most direct relationship to the ministries that we're doing. Can I just add one little word here? I don't want to try to be a mind reader or the person who who asked this question, but I'm going to do it anyway. it, it sounds as though you assume uh, that women are being fully deployed in many areas of the PCA, and why do we even need to say, please fully deploy women in appropriate roles uh, in your churches? But that is really not the case. We've had a lot of discussion, um, both the men and the women of churches, where the culture of the church is what women may not do, and that is the atmosphere in the church rather than what women are gifted to do, what they should be encouraged to do, what they should be deployed and and um, let free to do. So I don't really think that this report is just baptizing the status quo. It is encouraging churches that might not be your church, but other churches who are really in a very negative place as far as ministry, uh, allowing women to minister their gifts in the appropriate role. And for many churches, this is going to be a fairly radical report, I think. Thank you. Uh, as I... Oh, go ahead. I'm going to, you, you get 30 seconds there, and then i got to close. Well, um, um, yeah, Kathy, uh, as usual, is uh, a little bit down the road for me on this one, and, um, and I just want to reaffirm it and then maybe state it a little bit differently. Um, I think that uh, status quo is not what we would want this report to do. First of all, this report nails some pegs down that ought to affect the practice of life and ministry of our church. The peg of what is ordination, uh, the issue of complementarianism. What not? What simply does it say women can't do? But what should women be doing in our church that we desperately need? We do that in our homes, don't we? I mean, you know, my wife, uh, not just simply what she doesn't do because I'm, I'm a husband and father, but what does she do? And I know that's true because she told me that that is exactly the way we work. And, uh, and so, but I, my, my children need her full engagement. Our marriage needs her full engagement. Not, and it doesn't need to be defined negatively, but also positively. So I think with ordination nailed down, with complementarianism nailed down, some recommendations how to pr- pr- pursue a gracious and robust, I think it would have a great effect on our denomination moving forward. I know it at our con- in, in the local church I serve. To see the women serving on all the appropriate committees that they're doing has brought 
great blessings uh, to our congregation. So I think that's what it's looking to do, and that's what it is attempting to accomplish. And so I would see it not, no one wanted to say, hey, we're doing it just right. It's what does our, what does our biblical understanding in uh, our Constitution say? And from that center, work out in expanding the circumference. You see, it's my opinion that the best way to gain diversity is to nail down the unity. And then the, the diversity is drawn together around that unity. And I think that's what our committee represented in a wholesome way. You'll please notice how many times it said, pursuing this within the, within the direction of biblical standards and our constitutional documents. And I think that, and therefore our committee uh, has produced something that I think will be helpful to local churches and presbyteries. That was more than 30 seconds, but. <laughs> <laughs> not, in, not in Birmingham. That was just 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, in this final word in, in closing, thank you all for, for coming out this morning and for engaging with us. It has been our joy to work together to produce this report as not the conclusion of a conversation, but the encouragement of an ongoing one. And in that diversity that Dr. Reedy was talking about, you that of practices within our church, a key point is grace. To be gracious in our um, in our uh, considerations of one another, as opposed to uh, skeptical and wondering whether or not we're being out of bounds, but to look at one another uh, with charity and grace in these practices. Let me close our time in prayer. Father, we do bow before your throne of grace this morning. We are thankful for the privilege of being heirs uh, of, uh, of your kingdom and to be united because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We do pray, Lord, that you would bless this church, this, this branch of your church to grow even more in health as we uh, as we pursue your kingdom mission and as all of the gifts that you give your people are given room to flourish for the glory of Jesus Christ and the good of your people. And we ask it in his name. Amen. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.